0: the absolutely classic Enya. I strongly believe that listening to Enya should be mandatory on New Year's Day. Now, you may have heard of Canadian author Alana Mitchell back in uh, 2008 when she published a book called Seasick. That went on to be a bestseller. She's not an actor. She's not a scientist. But in her one-woman show, Seasick, this Canadian author outlines what she's learned about the health of the world's oceans, oceans that she describes as warm, breathless and sour. So why turn a book about climate change into a play? Here's Alana Mitchell speaking to Claire Nichols at the Darwin Festival last year.
1: You're from the Canadian Prairies, and a question you ask in your show is, how does a girl from the Canadian Prairies become interested in the ocean?
2: Yeah, and the answer is is unclear to me, really, except that I guess, in a sense, everything every part of the planet relates back to the ocean. So, I mean, being a citizen of this planet means being connected to the ocean. And when I finally realized that, sort of the the penny dropped and I thought, okay, I I can handle this. And you
1: draw a beautiful analogy, actually, because you are one of the few people who's been right down to the bottom of the
2: ocean and you saw something of, of your home country there. Yeah, I, I went down to three thousand feet, which is, I mean, there are parts of the ocean that are deeper than that, but that was the bottom where I was. And I think I'm the only journalist in the world who have gone that deep in a submersible, as I understand it. At least that was what I understand. And and it was. It was like the prairies. I, I you know I looked at this little porthole and there and it was it's it's very desolate place. It's it's at least that part of the ocean floor was was very desolate. Very sparse, you know, life is not thick there, it's not like in parts of the ocean where you just, it's it's teeming with life. It's beautiful and it did remind me of the prairies. We're talking about how beautiful the ocean
1: is but I guess what you learned about the ocean was pretty terrifying. Uh, can you run us through the basics? I mean, just shock us with the basics of what you've discovered about our oceans.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it really goes back to carbon dioxide loads in the atmosphere and how that carbon is affecting the ocean. That's the that was my big reveal in the research I did. So it turns out that all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is uh, making our ocean. Our global ocean warm, breathless, and sour. By that I mean that it's it's becoming the temperature is rising, parts of the ocean are losing oxygen, dissolved oxygen, and the ocean water is becoming more acidic. So, uh, the, and that's just a chemical reaction between carbon dioxide and the water. It creates carbonic acid, and that's a huge thing for the, the acidity is a huge thing for creatures that live in the ocean. So they have a have a harder time making their shells. Already in some parts of the ocean, the shells are starting to corrode on some creatures, it's affecting behaviour of animals, it's affecting the young very deeply, you know baby marine animals need a certain um, stable chemistry in order to live and so this is is interfering with it already and it, it just means that life as we know it is in danger. How do you process this kind of information, how do you sit with this kind of knowledge? Oh, you know what, I really had a hard time with it. I went through a period of pretty intense depression after I discovered, after I started putting the pieces together, I really, I really, uh, I fell into quite a severe depression and it, it took a lot t- to to get me out of it. And In fact, it was it was this trip to the bottom of the ocean in the submersible that that became my epiphany. I I had a life before that and I have a life after that and they are not the same and I don't know I don't know a good way to describe that without sounding like an idiot but it's true Uh, it just there's something about being in part of the planet on part of the planet where you don't belong where you're absolutely at the mercy of technology of the uh, of human ingenuity of you are pushed so far out of your limits that somehow you have to come to a different relationship with reality.
1: Did it take you from a place of, of depression to hope? It,
2: that's exactly what it did. It just, I, I suddenly could see that, because I had been looking at this issue as over the past few hundred years, I'd been looking at, at it through that lens and suddenly I realized that there were billions of years there and, and for the first time I could see them all working together somehow. And I could see that therefore there was another future I don't know how to describe it really in any good way, except that I became very, very abstract. My brain, it's like I grew another brain on the other side of my head and I I suddenly could see something abstract that I had never been able to see before. And then, of course, the challenge as a journalist is to try to explain that in a way that just doesn't sound, uh, you know, uh, make you sound like a fool. But I became more philosophical. Okay, so you tried to explain that first in a
1: book. You wrote the book, Seasick, and now you've adapted this into a play. I've got a couple of questions about this. Firstly, why a play when of all the things you could do and and second of all how is this a play because it's you on stage you're reciting non-fiction facts you're telling stories but this is true what's the line between this being storytelling or a
2: a ted talk and this being a play yeah it's such a good question and we we dealt with that a lot in toronto um, when the play was premiered uh, which was in 2014 People, the critics said, "Why is this a play and not a, you know, a TED talk on on steroids?" Was I think the way they put it. And th- we see it as a play because it, we see it as an avant-garde play because it's a non-fiction play performed by a non-performer, and that's me. And I'm just up there, being myself, telling the stories of, uh, you know, that that I researched that these are these these happened and they I lived them and and you're right. First, I wrote them up in a book, and then I and then I started giving talks about them, and then. Um, Franco Bonnie, who is the artistic director of, of the theater center in Toronto, saw me give a talk and said, "You know what? We could make this into a into a one-woman play," and I was absolutely terrified, and I'm still absolutely terrified every single time I go on stage. It's just, it's just, it does not, uh, it does not subside, the terror. But we decided that it it has the structure of a of a play. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a, an emotional arc. It has humor. It has a soundtrack. It has lighting. It has character development. It has all of the things that any play has and so we just said it's a play and therefore it is a play.
1: And it is and as an audience member it's such an unusual thing to be a part of. I guess the main thing for me is often in a play we're confronted with some sort of conflict, it's resolved, we go home. Whereas this where we're confronted with a conflict which is our existence and we wrap up the play but as an audience, we're still sitting with that and processing that and trying to figure out what to do. It's a really unusual experience.
2: It's a really, It was really, really tough to write the ending to that play. And in fact, the, the ending, the play that you saw is the third ending. And I was just talking to Franco and he thinks that we should write a fourth or I should write a fourth. But it was critical to us not to wrap it up in a little bow and hand it to the audience and say, OK, it's all done now. You don't have to think about it anymore. It's The, the whole point of doing this play is to let people know what's really going on and then hopefully unleash their own creativity to try to figure out what to do about it so in a sense the the very seditious thing that secretly happens in this play is that all these stories all this information becomes yours as the audience all of a sudden now all of these stories are yours and you have to decide what to do with them you talk about using
1: creativity to solve the problem and one of the things you talk about in the play is that you believe that art and culture has a place in trying to find a solution to
2: climate change. How is that? Why is that? It's not that I believe it has a place. It is the only way, I think, that we're going to find a solution. I I believe that the solution rests uniquely in art and culture because I think that you can't... I have a line in play that says, and the line is, science can only take us so far. And I, I believe that. I think that you can't just keep explaining this information more and more cogently or, or uh, in more and more detail to people and expect things to change. Because that's not how we accomplish change as a species. We accomplish change through the arts. We accomplish things through narrative, through feeling, through emotion. And I, I think it's it's only through that and, and it's not a question, just to be clear, of just terrifying people into changing because I don't believe that. I don't believe that we have time for the paralysis that that would t- result in. I think that it's it's about somehow breaking through that terror and, and blame and anger and guilt and grief, all of those really strong paralytic emotions and getting to another place where we say, okay, this is what we've got. This is how serious it is. Let's just move on and figure it out. And and that has to come from a place of uh, thinking that it's worth it, that our species is worth it.
1: Alana Mitchell, it's been a joy to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Canadian author Alana Mitchell speaking to Claire Nichols at the Darwin Festival last year. And you can find out more about Seasick, the book, and Seasick, the play, on Alana's own website. You'll find all the details on our webpage.